This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kura Mawera. Kura Sam, how's it going? It's going very well indeed. Now, I can't resist making a dad joke about it being our 404th episode. So <laughs> I was so close to saying, let's skip the 404 and, and skip, skip straight to Friday, but let's not. <laughs> no, let's not do that. <laughs> And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Alex Gorry. Alex has come to us via Ray O'Brien, who we've introduced before, who's the sustainability dude at Otago University. And Alex is with the Malcolm Trust. He's a youth worker. Um, he is into bike reclamation, food growing uh, group and uh, development work with youth and really is just like an absolute hero actually. Alex, you are exactly the kind of person we need a lot more of in our world. Welcome. Oh, tenako. Nōk te fifi. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on board. Uh, yeah, it would be nice to have a call at all with you both. Welcome, Alex. Where are you, Alex? Uh, I'm in Dunedin. Sunny. Where in, where in Dunedin? Dunedin uh, just near Jubilee Park, pretty central at the, the Malcolm Trust office uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So what is it that you do for Malcam? Uh, I'd say the vast majority of my time is spent doing bicycle um, repair or destruction work. So uh, I'd, I'd say f- four days a week is um, dedicated to uh, either going to tertiary providers, schools, doing um, after-school programs and uh, involving some of our alternative education groups. Um, with uh, practical mechanical type skills that you have around fixing and destroying bikes um, and the rest is sort of slotting in as and where I need um, but yeah we've got an orchard as well uh, a wee bit out of town that uh, myself and one of the other staff members have been tending to primarily so yeah that's that's me mostly. When you say repair and destruction what's the What's the two bits you're doing? So it uh, depends on the bike. Uh, we've got an agreement with the council, uh, the, the Dunedin City Council here, that we're the only ones that go and get bikes from the landfill. Um, obviously, some of the bikes can't be saved, but quite often, more often than not, there are parts that can be saved on those. And uh, anything that can be taken off, uh, we just strip down, and that just adds to our massive stockpile of bits that we can, um, yeah, help fix the the good ones with um 
all of the metal gets recycled at the local scrap dealer and the rubber goes back to the landfill to be recycled up in Ōtotahi Christchurch. Yeah. So it's a mix of engineering, mechanical work mm. and youth work. What got yeah. you into that space? Uh, so my my formal training is as a mechanical engineer and that's um, so that's where I come from but I also quite like working with young people uh, and this job is just a an awesome mix of both of those sort of avenues but um it was i i've been involved in the sort of waste minimization repair type space in dunedin for a few years and um it's just been a good opportunity to divert one of the big waste streams that we've got at the landfill um and that's that was sort of the motivation to to focus primarily on the bikes providing something that people uh, have a use for and have a whole raft of benefits um, and also getting rid of waste at the same time, which is kind of a cool mix. It does seem, well, it seems sensible, but it's also slightly unusual that you, those things are combined, mm-hmm. the, the youth work and the, the, the fixing bikes, the waste minimization. It, Presumably it works. Yeah, I think it does. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been here two and a bit years and I've still got a job which um surely that's like a metric of it working to some extent <laughs> but uh I think prior to me being involved um we're sitting at about 500 bikes pulled out of the landfill over the the few years preceding that and it's yeah it's it's doubled more than doubled in the last um year and a half like COVID stuff included as well when you're talking about bikes being diverted from the landfill, you, this is seriously diverted from the landfill. You're picking them up at the landfill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they've got a um, a compound that uh, if a bike arrives there, it just it makes its way to the compound. And uh, I think at the worst part, there was close to 500 bikes there and somewhere around the 250, 300 bike mark at the moment. Uh, probably two thirds of them can be saved, but, the other third can't be saved and the actual uh percentage i guess of stuff that has no further use and can't be recycled is in yeah less than two percent so uh out of the entire bike there's like a few like 100 grams most of plastic that we can't do anything with everything else doesn't need to be at the landfill and so we put it to where it needs to go yeah and they are the full range of pile of not much through to a bike with it just a bit broken yeah absolutely yep some of them just need the brakes tweaked some of them just need air in the tires and some of them just need everything that's not metal taken off and straight to the scrapyard there's nothing that can be done about it so yeah there's a whole a whole mix and um some reasonably high quality bikes that's not not typically what i'd call rubbish quite a lot of them um some of them look like they've only had a couple of hours riding which is really sad and i think that's um that's something that i've tried to just get a bit of awareness around through this um co-pupper as well can bikes find their way to this process without going via the tip they can um i have to be careful about how i word this though because uh we've had uh, every so often if um there's a, an article or something in the the local paper or uh people get wind of it we get inundated up at the office with bicycles <laughs> um but yes there is a process um but if 
if people if anyone's interested in donating bikes in the the greater Dunedin area then um yeah give us a call first please and we'll um yeah we'll sort it from there <laughs> let's take the first of your music choices let's have Pure Rahua from Teramoana Rapley why this one uh I've I've been an avid listener to the the Tardinga podcast series over the last couple of years, um, and uh, I just really enjoyed the the mix of Tonga Porto, um, Waiata Māori, and uh, some <laughs> slightly harder hitting electronic music uh, in the background there. Yeah, yeah. it's a goodie. I 
We actually normally start the show with asking how your bubble life was. Let's do it now. How was your bubble life? Uh, bubble life for me uh, was pretty good, to be honest. <laughs> yep. We're, I, I assume we're talking about our, uh, isolation bubbles of yesteryear. Um, yeah, no, it was uh, relatively relatively easy and there was a whole lot of cooking and eating delicious food uh, done by me and my partner. So yeah, uh, we we enjoyed it <laughs> quite. And the and the time after that and the traffic lights. Uh, that yeah, that was um, an interesting time because I'm involved in a few um, like bike recycling spaces as a volunteer as well, um, and that was a wee bit tricky just navigating that because all the people that we couldn't see during the isolation period. Um, suddenly had we just had a backlog of people that needed stuff fixed and quite heavy restrictions on how we were able to do it and um just making sure that we're keeping everyone safe uh was a bit tricky uh with some of our more colorful characters um but yeah i i'm really glad to be out of the red traffic light uh situation at the moment because that's it just makes the the work that i do quite a lot easier and um just has yeah a lot less restrictions and are you back to business as usual in terms of working with the young people yep with the young people definitely um if anything i I got a wee bit of uh leeway to sort all the processes and systems and um yeah if anything it's business that was better than usual so i'm i'm quite happy with how that's panned out eh? Alex, we've got a similar program running here in Fakatani called Fano on Wheels, where people get to donate uh, their bikes. Um, I recently donated my cruiser when I uh, just got my new e-bike. And it was just really neat. I've seen a mum with her kids riding around town on my old cruiser, and it's just made me so happy. Yeah, that's a pretty cool feeling, eh? Oh, it's massive. And uh, we also... um, and the bike shop that runs the Fano on Wheels program is shortly about to start 
teaching um, some basic bike maintenance classes, which is going to be through our mountain bike club. Oh, nice. Yeah, so nice. that'll be really cool. And um, and I was going to ask you, do you, uh, are you getting funding from anywhere um, to support this? Uh, no, <laughs> not yet. Okay. I'm writing a funding application as we speak. Nice. We've received funding from the council in the past, but um, yeah, at the moment, uh, as as it's a youth, uh, well, yeah, youth focused co-papa, um, it does fall under one of our MYD contracts. But there's nothing specifically for doing the bike stuff, um, which just means that uh, the program is running at a loss. But well, if, if it's running at a loss, if we consider it just on financial terms, but um, I feel like not all the benefits are financial benefits and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How many bikes are you putting out into the community that are ready to ride each year, roughly? Each year, um, last year it was four hundred and ninety-nine. Um, oh, so that was pretty sweet. And uh, on top of that, um, yeah, there's all the ones that we can't um can't make do and um, they they just get scrapped but they they feed back in so the money that we get from the scrap metal goes toward buying helmets for Fano that can't necessarily afford helmets uh because there's no point in providing part of the service effectively but not uh not making it fully safe um mm. so that's got a nice circular element to it there um but i think uh as of today the total is going to be 1,118 bikes have been processed so far since the Copapa begun in 2018. Um, and it's somewhere on the order of like 13 tonnes, almost 14 tonnes of material that has been taken out that didn't really need to be in the landfill. It could have been processed a different way and um, we're just working through getting all the systems to make it robust to keep processing it the way it needs to be. Yeah. The, the decision making around starting this program, what what was the impetus for it? How did it actually get going? Oh, I, I actually can't answer that because there was a uh, a different general manager that we had at the time who's no longer with us. And my friend uh, was the first person to take up the mantle of doing the, the project, I guess. And I don't think it was sort of a full time or like maybe sort of 10 hours a week type on bikes. Um basically there's a bit of freedom within the youth work stuff to focus some of the the programs we deliver toward the strengths of the youth workers and he had an interest in doing the bike repair stuff and they just ran with it and it's just sort of grown uh, quite exponentially um since it began eh? yeah that's so cool and one of the things I've seen uh, working, and I'm the secretary of our mountain bike club, I'm really involved in the club working with our kids, you know, local kids on bikes. And one of the things I've seen um, in my own son and in so many other children is this transformation that comes when you all of a sudden discover your inner biker. <laughs> are you seeing that kind of transformation in in the work that you're doing? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um Possibly in a biker and in a mechanic. Well, I guess yeah. we don't do as much. Um, as, like, uh, I can still appreciate when they go out for rides, but primarily we're doing the fixing and dismantling. Um, and that's that. Well, just just that, like, oh, okay, now I understand how this works. Or, and because I understand this, I understand how all these other elements of it work. And like, that's really cool. Quite often, the rangatahi that are involved with the program. Um, 
might not fit into uh and it's not always the case and there are some that like obviously excel at school but some of them don't fit into the reading and writing based curriculum and some that are a lot more hands-on um and just yeah practically minded and it's just awesome giving them a space to uh really shine i think yeah so yeah that's no so cool. def definitely see that and that's um that's why i like working with young people as well <laughs> do you think that there's a um oh, we talk about this a lot on the show about about education and about assessment and mm. uh, about those rangatahi that you're talking about who mm -hmm. the system the system fails to acknowledge where their intelligences are and sets them up to fail by making them assess to a standard that yeah. that they just don't even yeah. it's not part of the reality totally um it just seems ridiculous and yeah that's that's what we experience and uh some of the in-school programs that i've done um i get lumped with the like the misbehaving students that's whatever you want to call them the ones that might act out in class and like they've just got such a phenomenal understanding of how these like practical systems work uh and because they're in an environment that um there's no need for them to misbehave or whatever uh the yeah like it's hard to see them as anything other than being really talented um and it's just yeah it's a bit of a shame that school doesn't uh not all schools necessarily um provide that sort of environment that yeah supports them in the right way yeah, yeah. can you see a change coming in education and the work that you're doing uh i'd love to i feel like it's changed quite a lot since i was at school a decade ago in terms of what um is acceptable assessment wise um and because i'm pretty sure they can achieve credits at secondary uh, like in nca one two and three for doing some of the bike mechanic stuff and some of the bike riding stuff and like seeing a, yeah a smaller shift but yeah it'd be good to see a slightly uh slightly bigger shift just to be a bit more inclusive yeah 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 alex you kind of started off down this academic path in your life and then you've had made a big jump over to the social side i call that the light side yeah, <laughs> so have you have you so you've made this leap into transforming lives and also bringing your skill set with you obviously but what was the reason for that change because that's significant yeah i guess it is uh, i think it was it wasn't just a instant flip it was probably quite gradual uh i yeah finished my engineering degree up in canterbury and then did a, a postgrad uh, master's as well, and then worked in the engineering sector for a bit, um, doing vehicle conversion from fuel to electric. Uh, and the work was really awesome, like the, the engineering processes and um, just like the problem solving were what sort of attracted me to engineering in the first place. But um, I feel like it was providing solutions to quite a select group of people um and i could see because the the workspace that we're working at was um like co-shared i guess by one of these volunteer bike cafe repair workshops whatever you want to call them um the people that came in because they needed a bike because that was their only means of transport and they didn't have like they couldn't fork out forty thousand dollars to get their car converted to electric um I was like, oh, although this is nice for like a certain section, there's this whole other section that isn't really catered for by 
some of the um, like the cutting edge technology stuff. Um, and I'd say my lecturer, uh, Professor Susan Crumdyck, um, who I think is no longer based at University of Canterbury, but she just had some pretty revolutionary ideas around transition engineering, um, which focuses on technology and infrastructure and behaviour. And uh, I feel like it's the behaviour aspect of, uh, well, why is it why is it wrong to to want to ride a secondhand bike? Why does it have to be new? Why do we need like a brand new uh, vehicle or whatever, uh, et cetera, just following that like line of reasoning um, that I think it just prompted me to realize that there were different ways to approach the uh, the problem. I, I, I think low emissions, low um, low energy intensity transport interests me quite a lot, which, as a bicycle really and like better than a new bicycle it's a secondhand bicycle that you know how to fix yourself and that uh you can help show other people how to fix their own bicycles because you've picked up a few of the skills and i don't know it was sort of a gradual transition like that i guess but um just confronting people with the oh well, how much is this going to cost uh, and just saying like well it's a koha kyakwe to tikanga like you you choose if i tell you how much then um, it, it doesn't become a koha anymore and uh, we don't want anyone like leaving here without a bicycle so removing financial barriers um, removing some of the like skill barriers that might stop people doing it and um, just trying to provide a safe workshop space um, safe and inclusive to uh, yeah to just rethink some of those like assumptions about how we do things yeah Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou ko tahuaho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope, wherever you are, whatever's happening around this journey, you're on to get proven to be very reward, very sustaining and illuminated for you in each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's perfect and here making us better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all, the last more than two and a half years have been very challenging. We've had to adapt, had to adjust, and we still are every day and every moment. And of course, as a species, we are replete with skills in order to support this. We are so adaptable. We are able to negotiate the shifts and changes that take place around us and within us as time unfolds. On this treasure hunt called life and you know here I am croaking at you from my bed awaiting the results of a PCR test and having largely lost smell and taste I am interested to see what the results will be I know that for us all we are doing our best constantly and we are constantly being asked to support those life forms around us and support ourselves and this is a real juggle this is a real balancing act between how we understand and care for the collective and how we understand and care for ourselves and it's a juggling act and a balancing act that I think we have to work through our whole lives in different ways and whilst we can have a sense of the great infinite web of life we can have a sense of the the oneness and the impersonal in which we can move and we can connect and nourish and heal 
also have to protect our own energy and our own reserves of energy so that we can care for ourselves as individuals and at this time we are shifting and changing we are thinking about how we can do things differently collectively and individually and it's a fascinating time to be alive as much as it is challenging as much as it's hard and stressful so many new ways of doing being seeing feeling are coming to the fore which is very exciting so i really hope for you whatever's happening around you and whatever you're working through at the moment you're seeing how new parts of yourself are coming forward and indeed new parts of the collective are coming forward i know that for all of us we've been meeting new people we've been working in different ways we've been connecting in different ways and so we're constantly learning from one another and this is something i love about us as a species that we're always in relationship we're always in a mode of exchange and each person that we meet can be a beautiful mirror to us to unearth and respect and honor parts of ourselves that we may not have connected with for some time or never have connected with and it's only in meeting these other individuals that that part of us comes forward and this is a constant interplay that we have not only with other human animals but with all life so i really hope for you you're having the opportunity to re-engage and reconnect in really interesting and nourishing ways i know for myself now that i am returning to having large groups of beautiful people come to visit me at Orokanui. I'm realizing and understanding so much about the role that we can play in these conversations, in these moments of connection. We've all had such a stressful and tiring time, so to be able to be there for one another, to be able to empathize with one another and do our best to give each other the best time, that base level of generosity that default mode of nurturance and care is so precious. And I really hope that you're seeing evidence of that and feeling that in your own life. And of course, this show is just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me. And I'm so grateful to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team for having me and being able to share with you all in this way. So thank you all, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Kakite. You're listening to blowing bubbles we're talking with alex gory alex before tahu you were talking about learning from susan crumdike we've had her on the show before uh, talking about green mm. myths and 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 so on a- and the transition that engineering needs to to make do you think you've done a transition out of engineering or is it a new way of looking at engineering how do you see that um yeah, I'd, I'd like to say that I haven't transitioned out of engineering. I, I still like solving problems and I like understanding how things work, but not necessarily just mechanical uh, or electrical systems, uh, like social and behavioral systems as well. Uh, and I think um, it's to, to solve some of the uh, climate catastrophe issues that we're going to be facing um, over our lifetimes, um, all of those facets of the, the scenario need to be considered. So it's not just the technology. And although I'm not um, working in like research and development or design stuff per se at the moment, I yeah I feel like I'm not fully fully out of engineering, and I probably won't ever fully be out of engineering. But yeah, it's um, yeah just a, a bit of a fluid um, beast, and I've just got an opportunity to 
uh, to work in the waste minimization sort of area at the moment, and that um, that's suiting me quite well right now. You're talking about how you are taking the um, the bikes from the tip, mm-hmm. or occasionally before that. What yep. sort of thing would have to happen for you not to be needed at all? Can you can you see a, a pathway to that? Well, that's actually that was what I was writing in the grant application that I was doing this morning. Um, I haven't quite worked out how it would work yet, but like that's ultimately, I think that's what it needs to be. It needs to be it needs to be like a replicable model that doesn't rely on one person or a handful of people with a certain set of skills. The skills need to be able to be transferred. Uh, the the startup the amount of money that's invested in it or given to it whatever you want to frame that like um needs to be pretty small and i don't know quite the pathway to to get to that point and that's that's probably what interests me most at the moment because we've got all the like processing systems at work and at the landfill pretty well developed um and they've been streamlined over the last few years but it still does require me to uh, sort of be the catalyst in a lot of the going and getting it, um, processing them, uh, making sure that they're safe. And I think the be- the bottleneck is probably having someone that's qualified to like tick it off at the end and say, yes, I'm willing to put my name to this and say, this is safe to go back out to the public. Um, and that's that's the main reason that the uh, the local landfill um, isn't like they used to sell bikes through the second-hand shop, I believe, but um, just like the liabilities that come with that kind of outweighed any benefits that um, they were seeing. So uh, that's why there's such a backlog of them. Um, but I, I see that as being probably the the barrier uh, at this point, that you need enough people with uh, the skills to to check it off and make sure it's all safe, but also the, the desire to want to do it in this way and not necessarily um just go into like um i guess commercial or retail sort of aspects of it. it needs to needs to be someone that's interested in both of those in kind of equal amounts is there any reason why a bike can't last forever Ooh. uh <laughs> i'm not sure no i think if it's well maintained obviously the bits are going to wear out i'd say uh the actual frame if it's looked after right should be able to last uh effectively as long as it's ever going to be need to be uh in service for but components will wear out the brakes will wear out the tires will wear out the chain will get stretched the gears will wear out but um (laughs) thankfully 90 percent of the stock that we have access to is from what is uh commonly referred to as the golden era of bikes which is somewhere in the late 80s to early or to mid 90s where everything's interchangeable and where there's such a, a massive stockpile of bikes that maybe the frames compromised we can take all the good bits off that and give another round of life to another uh higher quality bike so i feel like the lifespan of a bike can definitely be uh, extended and extended and extended um, if it's of reasonable quality to begin with. Yeah. What's the post golden era of bikes uh, <laughs> design look like? I mean, are we moving to some sort of I don't know integrated components that that aren't replaceable? What what's what's happening? Yeah, quite often it's. Um, so I guess when I say golden era, it's um, 
no hydraulic lines, which are all right because uh, new brakes um, are excellent in terms of their performance, but in terms of getting it out the door, quick turnaround sort of thing on a second-hand product, um, cable brakes are really good. Uh, steel frames are good um, just because you can bend them back and bend them forward and bend them back and it's not going to snap the same way aluminium is, same with carbon. Um, and a lot of the components from that era and earlier um, between brands were slightly more interchangeable and between bikes um, were slightly more interchangeable, but as, it, as it's gone, got more proprietary, um, it's a bit harder to, to find a compatible piece and it might be um, the difference between, because I, I know I've got a few that overall the bikes are awesome, but they're missing one crucial part that allows you to put the derailleur on so you can change gears because it's very specific to that bike. Um, it's gone to the tip, so it's uh, obviously not be deemed worthy to to fix up. But if the if that part costs a hundred dollars on its own, um, it kind of just turns people off. Um, so yeah, it's that's just the way the industry's gone, and um, it just makes it a wee bit more of a process to get those ones up and running. But um, and usually more expensive. So yeah. Have you seen any e-bikes come through your pipeline yet? Uh, no, I've not. Uh, I work as an e-bike mechanic on Fridays. That's my um, extra extra job, so I can sort of hone my own um, mechanical skills a bit more. Um, but yeah, no, they they haven't trickled down. Um, and I'm hoping that we've got the the infrastructure in Dunedin set up to help sort of minimise that. Um, uh, yeah, there's a an electrical engineer, Lucas Siegfried, who repacks the battery packs um so once the batteries or if one of the cells dies um he can redo that and add extra capacity just make it but yeah overhaul that and um i think that's a pretty important uh capacity to have uh, as we see more and more e-bikes in the market eh? let's take the second of your music choices let's have tasha hohaya manu why this one nice uh Oh, I just love the tune. I, I heard it on the local radio station, uh, Radio 1, and, yeah, just very much enjoyed it. I think it's um, got some good good lyrics in there too. Hey, look. 
we've seen lots of changes in society over the last couple of years mm. what do you think is going to stick and perhaps more importantly what do you hope will stick uh i hope people looking out for each other a bit more will stick i feel like uh that was something that i really noticed right after we got out of our lockdowns and um even as the levels changed or whatever uh just having a bit more patience and a bit more okay, this isn't done now, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know, I I think uh, that, that was a really nice thing to, to come out of it anyway in my circles. Do you think we can take lessons from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the bigger sorts of problems we face as a global community? I'm thinking of things like climate change or yeah. social justice on the large scale. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, when all the information is sort of conveyed in the way like it was during the, the pandemic and the lockdowns, um, it got such massive buy-in from, I'd, I'd say, the overwhelming majority. And um, there were the people that like ardently disagreed as well, but uh, the amount of misinformation and disinformation out there was outweighed by, I think, everyone's collective understanding of knowing what's going to be good not just for me and my direct associates but yeah why maybe we need to uh just change things up for a bit so we can make it easier in the longer term um yeah no i think i definitely think that's the case although knowing what's good for us is only loosely related to what we actually do we all know we should run up <laughs> hills every morning and you're the only one of us that does it <laughs> oh there's always time to start maybe you join me in the pool and maybe I'll walk up a hill with you. Yeah, okay. I'll walk. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I swim like a stone. <laughs> I run like a stone. So we're, <laughs> we're well suited. Awesome. We've seen the pandemic and the time after the pandemic is described as a, a reset or a rahui or a business as usual or a whatever regeneration. What are you seeing that... That, that opportunity as yeah and definitely an opportunity to uh, rethink the way we do some of the things we do um, I think we've noticed quite a big difference in good pos positive difference in um, flexibility with how we work and I know a few of my friends now work from home and the hours are a bit more flexible uh, and I'd say at no cost to productivity for the companies that they work for um, I think something we need to be a bit aware of is like the, the young people that have gone through two years of really disrupted schooling who don't really have any buy-in to, to get back into school necessarily because all they know is, um, or for the last two years is, oh, it might be called off or maybe it, like the plans just kept getting shifted and changed on them. Um, and 
I think something that we're seeing with some of the rangatahi we work with uh, presentations of uh, like high levels of anxiety or depression or things that we're seeing in older age groups coming down to younger age groups, uh, as well as just uh, yeah high levels of disengagement from education. And that's going to be hard for in the short term, but also uh, a few years down the track, um, especially for the especially hard for those people that um, had to yeah just had to had to do their schooling for that uh, rough period. Eh? Indeed, what do we do about that? Do you think? Uh, <laughs> redesign the schooling system, <laughs> make it more engaging. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's it. A couple weeks it's called it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have some questions to end the show with, and not very much time, so we're going to have to wriggle. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, uh, it, I, it's hard to. That's quite hard to quantify. I think um, it, it's easy to say, yeah, it's it's been good being able to pull more than a thousand bikes out of the landfill. That's pretty cool. Um, I take that as a win, but. Um, it's been awesome being able to engage, I'd say, probably around 200 young people uh, and just convey some of the ideas about waste minimization, about rethinking transport and transport autonomy and like needs and wants around um, vehicle usage and ownership uh, and just having some of those ideas being uh, taken on board. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say... Just yeah, giving giving a platform to to have those uh, discussions there. So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. Whoa. What is your superpower? <laughs> what got you into the mansion? <laughs> My superpower. Uh, oh, um. I uh, really, really, really floored me with this one, eh? Uh, being able to <laughs> fix any mode of transport with relative ease <laughs> and imbue those skills to other people as well. Yeah, I think it's the and engage. I think it's the and is the important bit there. The and yeah. engage young people in doing that. I think that's the that's the winner. Also, sinking like a stone. Yeah. Do you yes. consider yourself to be an activist? Uh, uh possibly. Yeah. Oh, um, I've definitely been involved in a few direct action protests and events, and I feel like activism is a pretty broad thing. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm not satisfied by the systems around us at the moment, and I feel like the way that I'm trying to live my life is actively trying to find different avenues that we can also investigate. So, uh, but no, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't know. Compared to some of my friends who are definitely say activists, I'm nah, just doing what's within my power to, uh, to try and do, do things a bit differently. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, the sun on my face and I, I think uh, an appreciation for nature and not want to 
not wanting to see it destroyed or minimized or gone by the time that uh, I'm older. Um, and if uh, changing people's ideas around transport is a way to do that, then um, yeah, I'll do what I can there. Nature. So what challenge what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Uh, trying to make this system uh, without me being crucial in it. I don't want to work myself out of a job, but I want it to be able to be repeated. I, I, I think it would be a measure of something that was worthwhile for the community if um, it didn't require one person to do it, if it was something that could just be self, self-supporting self and self-sustaining, yeah. I think the best outcome is doing yourself out of a job because another job will come around on the basis of you doing that and you've, <laughs> yes, solved, you've yes. solved a problem in the way that makes it stay solved. Yes, yeah, yeah. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? If you're able to, ride a bike. It's really fun. <laughs> if you've got an old bike, check in with your community, uh, your friends, your marae, your workplace, if any of your colleagues or associates or people that you're in contact to could do with a bike or if their kids could. Um, yeah, if there are ways to divert it being sent to the landfill, think about that. That'd be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Make my work heaps easier. <laughs> Thank you for that. Melwera. Alex, um, the world definitely needs more people just like you. Um, one of our guests the other day when we asked about whether or not they were an activist referred to themselves selves as an activityist. Oh, and I kind of think you're in that category uh, as well. You're just busy out there doing it, making change happen, being the change. And a true activityist, I think. It yeah, has activity. been an absolute joy to talk to you today. Um you thank you very much for all the goodness that you add to the world for the work that you're doing with Rangatahi and also just for the opportunity that you provide people to uh, to embrace their inner biker. Uh, I totally appreciate that, and thank you for joining us. Tanaka, tanaka Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Thank you.
You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Tom Waits, Broken Bicycles. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dean, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and from the Malcolm Trust in City Rise, Dunedin, we've been joined by Alex Gorry. Well, the that was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Matewa. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.